Thank you for being here today. And as uh, Nathan said, we are continuing through a series we've uh, got this week and Lord willing next. We'll finish it up and then we'll move towards starting 1 John. We'll start in 1 John. We'll probably be there for six or seven months uh, going through that text and excited to do that with you, excited to learn. I hope you uh, get as excited as I do to do that. But today we continue on uh, in our text, Acts 2.42. We're also going to be in Philippians uh, a little bit, Philippians chapter 2, so you might put a uh, note or one of your uh, tags or some kind of bookmark uh, there. We'll be switching over to that also as we go. All right. Timothy Dwight's name is often referred to as most important in early American hymnology, literature, and education. He was born at Northampton, Massachusetts in 1752, graduated at Yale College in 1769, where he then went on to tutor from 1771 to 77. After serving as an army chaplain in the Revolutionary War, he pastored a church and taught in an academy at Fairfield, Connecticut, until he was appointed later the president of Yale. Although most of us are not familiar with the name Timothy Dwight, we are familiar with the name of his grandfather. He was, without a doubt, the most influential uh, pastor and theologian of the time, and you know him to be Jonathan Edwards. His grandson, Timothy, wrote his hymns from the inspiration of the Psalms, mostly every one that he wrote uh, uh, certainly is tied uh, to the Psalms. Uh, and they, he is the, his best known ones, if you are a fan of hymns and older hymns, are Blessed Be the Lord Who Heard My Prayer. He wrote that from Psalm 28. From Psalm 137, I love thy kingdom, O Lord. And from Psalm 17, I love thy church, O God. A couple of weeks ago, while we were painting out here in the front, I hope you have appreciated it. It is certainly brighter. I have to wear my sunglasses out there now. Um, uh, we took off a wall plaque, which you'll see right here. Um, uh, in order to paint behind it, we're going to do some special things with it here in the future, and you can come on up here and look at it a little bit later. But when we took that wall plaque down, uh, we found a really, really neat letter stuck behind it. I would love to have been there when it was done, but it is this letter here. It is on two half sheets of paper in order to get behind the wall plaque, and it is uh, nothing short of uh, this wall plaque is a dedication to this prayer chapel that we have. From a, uh, from a man uh, named Paul Emerson. And he wrote this in the dedication. I dedicate this chapel to the memory of Martha Francis Emerson Wellness as a refuge to the afflicted and tossed and as a haven for those who love and serve Christ for meditation, prayer, and thanksgiving to God for all his mercies. How fun is that? He knew someday some young dummy like me would come along and decide to paint that brick, right, and take the screws out, and behind there, he did not want it to be forgotten, this dedication of this room. And we're excited in the future. Our hope and plan is to frame that along with the letter and keep it inside the prayer chapel. But Mr. Emerson wrote in this dedication the fond memory of his mother who often sang 
Timothy Dwight's hymn, I Love Thy Church, O God. I suppose that it is nothing short of a difficult thing to sum up someone so special as a mother down to a single page of paper, hoping that someday she would not be forgotten. In his opening paragraph, he mentions that his mother was the granddaughter of the first preaching minister in Omaha, Nebraska. Think of that. This part of our country was developed so much later than others. And that uh, a church from that preaching was started in her father's house. After moving to Cyan, she uh, was married and she had Paul and his sister Grace. After being widowed two times and making $28 a month, Mr. Emerson notes that his mother's Bible was worn thin and tattered and that devotion was her prime characteristic. Beloved, this is the fifth study in our series titled A Devoted Church. So far, we have noted that the church that turned the world upside down in Acts chapter 17 found its strength in being devoted to six truths. We have already learned in this series that if we want to be a church that does the same thing, right, turns the world upside down, I hope that your hearts would be on fire for that, that, uh, that somewhere inside of us that we want to do more than just come alongside and have great singing of which we had this morning and great fellowship together but that we would want to turn the world upside down, amen? And so we have looked at these six truths already, and the first one is that Christ himself, at his ascension, gave to his church gifted men to equip the church, listen here, so the church could do what? Are you with me by by now? I repeat this almost every Sunday. so. So the church could do the work of the ministry. And we noted, right, certainly that pastoring is work, and we definitely put a lot of hours into pastoring, but the idea is, and the end game is, is that we would equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And we talked about, one, am I willing to do that? And two, are you willing to be equipped that you might be in the full-time ministry? As we learned last week from Pastor Grants, we must count the cost of being a disciple, And it is nothing short of our whole lives. Secondly, we learn that the lost matter, right? They matter to God. He sent his son to take, right, on our sin, the death that he experienced on the cross. And then he rose again and proved that the wages of sin, right, that is death, had no power over him. And we learned that if we are going to be a church that turns the world upside down, that we must care as God has cared. He has sent the most valuable thing in the universe, his own son, to the lost, that they may be saved. Third, we learned that the truth matters, that apostles' doctrine mattered. We learned that God empowered 12 apostles with signs and wonders, right, to distinguish their teaching from everybody else's. There's all kinds of false prophets running around. Jesus would even convict or, or uh, say woe to the Pharisees who were sending out their sons going traveling over the world and over oceans, right, to make people twice as much sons of hell that they were. 
How was it that Jesus was distinguished? It was by those signs, those wonders, those miracles set him apart from all those teachers and as it was with the apostles. Hence, we have a book titled The Acts of the Apostles. I had you add on the fourth message to fellowship the word the. I wanted to do that because I want to recover to the best of our ability here at FBC what fellowship means. And if you remember, we talked about it not being a verb, something like we often do. We think, well, we'll fellowship after this after this service, but we, uh, the best way to explain what the word fellowship is is really what we might call membership today, right? It is a covenant between two people or two uh, institutions, a, a, a coming together and saying, I will share my giftedness, my talents, my finances, my time, my abilities with you who will also do the same thing. And together, the fellowship will reach the world, Amen. We learned that uh, this fellowship a couple of weeks ago is a word that is used synonymously in other Greek writings for marriage. And it would be better for us to replace whatever we have in our mind as fellowship with this idea of membership, devotedness to one another through sickness and health till death do us part. That is the idea that we come together, we join together. This fellowship, this membership. This leads us to the fifth truth in this series. The church that turns the world upside down must be continually devoted to breaking bread. Breaking bread. That is the title of today's message. Today we'll see that the unity and devotion to breaking bread will unite us. And hopefully one day our children, like Paul Emerson spoke of his mother, will say that We loved your church, oh God. The Young's literal translation of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, translates this clause, the breaking of bread, as the breaking of the bread. The breaking of the bread. The definite article is in both places, before breaking and before bread. It is a long and detailed discussion. I have read a lot about this text. Uh, Maybe uh, that will surprise you. Uh, But coming down to the idea of what the breaking of the bread meant in this context has not been uh, so easy. And as much as I would love to tell you that it is, it's not. Uh, we learn that in Acts chapter 20, you might even put uh, some kind of marker over there. We'll, we'll be back there uh, in a little bit. But in verse 7, we see that the church came together on the first day of the week to break the bread. And we might look down here and we would see that today we're going to, uh, we are going to take the Lord's table together. And certainly it is the first day of the week and we have come together and we are going to break the bread together. But just a few verses later, just four verses later, actually, in verse 11, it is used generally. Paul preaches a long message. He, uh, so long that much like many of you, somebody's going to fall asleep. No, I'm kidding. The young man falls asleep. (laughs) He falls out of a third-story window to his death. He dies, if you remember. Paul goes down there, and the Lord heals him through Paul. He goes back up in verse 11, and it says they 
break the bread, give thanks, and they ate. So here it is, and just a matter of a couple verses, the term used very, very differently, and that is the struggle that we have a little bit with it here today. There are two main views, excuse me, that the biblical scholars have wrestled with as it pertains to this early description, and I've already mentioned them there in Acts 20, uh, uh, verse 7 and 11. One touts that the breaking of bread is a reference to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, And number two, the breaking of bread is a reference to just coming together for a general shared meal. Well, let's take a brief look at these two, and then we'll consider the thrust of the text, which I do not want us to miss, and has been throughout this whole series, which is that the breaking of the bread was done in unity, was done in fellowship. The first view is one that our minds tend to jump to when we read this text. We think, well, it's the church, but it hasn't been the church for very long, right? Acts 2 is unfolding. Peter is preaching the first message on Pentecost 50 days. Uh, After the Passover, uh, 3,000 people get saved, and then the immediate text that follows up says they're rightly baptized immediately, right? Right? And that they go on in the apostles' doctrine, in the fellowship, in the breaking of the bread, and in the prayers. So we see this uh, unfold very quickly, essentially the first day. Um, But in our minds, uh, we tend to read into this text, don't we? Uh, we, uh, we, we stop, we don't think about the time frame and how everything is unfolding, and we just look at it and we think, well, it must mean the Lord's table. Texts like Matthew 26, 26, Mark 14, 22, and Luke 22, 19, which all read something like 1 Corinthians, which we'll talk about today, verses 23 and 24, uh, says uh, this, right? That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I've already mentioned this text, Acts 20, verse 7. It says this on the first day of the week, right? Uh, Sunday, when we were gathered together to take bread. This is clearly and most likely a reference to the Lord's table. They gathered to do it, to break the bread. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, we, we read of it this way. This breaking of the bread is not the cup of blessing, which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. So it is in our minds we think, we eisegete, which is not very often very good to do, into the text this idea that while they must be speaking of day one, first church service, communion. I don't know. I'll let you decide. It's not completely unlikely That since the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, right, before he died, that is the breaking of the bread, uh, and it certainly could mean that this is the communion table. The strengths of this argument are that the Lord did institute it before his death, right? And secondly, the Greek manuscripts, as I've already pointed out, have the definite article in front of the breaking and the bread, certainly wanting to point out that this bread is special, In other words, it is not that they were just continually breaking some bread, like 
in general, right? They were breaking specifically the bread. That is the strength of that view. And view number two, and I tend to favor this one, the breaking of the bread would be referred to as that as it is a general reference to eating meals together. This view has a number of strengths. They are this. First, the church did not exist until that very day, and it might be unlikely that they were doing something like we will do today, break this bread and drink this wine and celebrate and say these words. Uh, certainly, the, the Gospels have not been written, right? Uh, Paul probably has the earliest reference to uh, uh, this ceremony in his writing of 1 Corinthians before uh, the Gospel of Matthew is produced. So it may not be likely, although it could have been, that oral tradition. Just think about it. It's only been two months at this point in our text since Jesus, less than two months since Jesus' death, and only about 10 days, listen, since he ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives. The argument here that it is general is that it is probably not likely uh, um, uh, that they had all this Lord's Supper established, but rather it was just kind of an idea of the general meal. Second, the argument for the position of the breaking of the bread is, is a reference, eating, uh, that it is a reference to eating a meal together, is that there is a pattern between the text of verse 42 in the paragraph that starts in verse 43, I'd like you to make sure that you're turning your Bibles. Hopefully you've got them there before you, and you can look at verse 42, which we're very familiar with by now. Those 3,000 Christians who ended up turning the world upside down were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And I want you to note the similarities between verse 42 almost like an introduction to verse 43 to 47. So take a look there at verse 42 and find apostle. You might uh, write right there in your text, verse 43 next to that, which says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. What set aside those apostles' teaching? Verse 43, those signs and wonders. Then, as we spoke of earlier, next to fellowship, you might scribble in verse 44 and 45, right next to fellowship. And those verses say, and all those who had believed were together, does that not sound like fellowship, and had all things in common, there's the sharing, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, the fellowship. Next to the breaking of bread, you can scribble in verse 46. Verse 46, which says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, there's our term, they were, look there, taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And just to finish up, you might write next uh, up to up there in verse 42, next to prayer, verse 47, which starts with a praise, a form of prayer. So this argument strength comes in this idea that, that verse 42 introduces this information, right? These four major pillars in verse 43 through 47 uh, give us an explanation of those four pillars. And so uh, there is certainly some 
great strength in that argument. And I tend to like that one, uh, that it is being used more generally of meals. And you might ask, well, is it used anywhere else? And as I have already said in Acts 20, verse 11, this is happening 24 years later in the text. 24 years later, Acts 20 from Acts 2. We can see that the terminology was used generally, especially by Luke, in the, uh, the, who is the author of Acts, right? When he, that's Paul, had gone back up, that's after raising the young man who fell asleep from the dead. Please don't try that in here. I, I am not an apostle. I would suggest you wake up. And had broken the bread and eating, he talked with a, uh, them a long while until daybreak and then left used generally there. A little later in Acts 27, 34 through 35, Paul is a, uh, a prisoner. He is on his way to Rome because he had a, appealed to Caesar. And as you will remember, the ship comes under this massive storm. He had warned them, let's not go. They go, right? They end up 14 days with no food. They think they're going to lose their life. They're, they're trying to uh, use clapping and fathoms to figure out even where they are. They had not seen the day or, or night because the storm was so difficult. And they had not eaten. Paul is visited by an angel. He's given a promise. And verse 34 says, Therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, and not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Imagine that scene. Verse 35, And having said this, he took bread, there it is, and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. Jesus in his resurrected body broke bread generally in Luke 24.30. Remember, he had been on this road to Emmaus with these two disciples. They could not recognize him. Uh, that is the setting here. And verse 30 says, when he had reclined at the table, they had invited him, if you'll remember. Um, he took bread, there it is. He blessed it and breaking it, he began giving it to them. So there it is. We have this general use, and you're going to have to decide for yourself, <laughs> is this a reference to the Lord's table? Either way, it is done in unity, and that is the thrust of the text. It is uh, the, uh, uh, Luke's is certainly trying to communicate to us that it is this unity, this power of coming together and being of one mind that they're taking the bread, whether that's a general meal or it is a very specific meal, we have to make our minds up. One of my favorite Bible teaching seminary professors often says this, and I always say to young men who are wanting to get into the pastorate, this works in the classroom, but not so much from the pulpit, but today I've just got to quote him. And he often says this, I have friends on both sides of this argument, and I believe them both, <laughs> right? He's right there with them. It's a little tough, and you'll have to decide. Amen? Wherever one lands on these views, I want to draw our attention to that which each view of breaking of the bread has in common. Without a doubt, all that was being done in the early years of this brand new institution known as the church where the Spirit of God for the first time comes and indwells 
people, right? We see in the Old Testament that he comes alongside people, but here the Spirit comes and he indwells his people. And the church begins, or the church age certainly uh, begins. Verse 46 in our text, which we are saying, or I'm going to argue, is the explanation of what it means to break bread, says that they were with one mind. Or we might say it this way, they were in complete unity. Unity is the strength of any organization, beloved. And since the church is the organization that has been sent with a message to the world for their salvation from God's wrath on sin, unity in our midst is of utmost importance. Think about this. I often say this, I spoke this morning to my Sunday school class, uh, that we so much struggle, I, I, I threatened them actually with a test. I threatened them with a test, right? Just for fun, but I might do it. Why is it that in the church that for some reason, just come, take it or leave it, there's no accountability, nobody's going to ask you if you learned anything, but if you want to go to school to become a medical doctor, I promise you this, and Tyler could speak to this very clearly, you're going to take some tests, and if you're going to go to church, or you're going to go to seminary, and you're going to get a Master of Divinity degree, I, I promise you this, you're going to get tested on hundreds, if not thousands, of vocabulary words in Greek and Hebrew, and, and you're going to get tested on how the Greek grammar works, and you're, they're going to make sure, right, that you are learning. Why is it that the church just says, well, come and get, and good luck with that. I, I hope it all works out for you. So anyway, I threatened them with a test. We might have a test. Why am I talking about that? Because unity is the strength of any organization. And if we have not learned together, we have not dedicated our lives together, if we've not come together in membership, fellowship together for a purpose of reaching the world, we will be rendered ineffective the devil will come in, he will divide us up, and it'll all be about American autonomy, and you get to live your life the way you want, and you live your life the way you want, and don't be involved in my life. That would be anti-fellowship, right? It is when we get involved in each other's lives that both the sin of others is revealed and your own sin and response to that sin is often revealed too, right? It is fellowship. It is marriage. Mark Chapter 3, verse 22 through 26, the narrative records for us Jesus speaking of the critical component of unity. Mark records that, verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he, that's Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul, and he, Jesus, casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. And Jesus essentially, we're going to read it here, is going to say, that's ridiculous, Today, when you go home and you watch your favorite team, the Denver Broncos, where's the Dyers? Anyway, I thought they might scream heresy or something. When you go home, right, you are not going to watch the Denver Broncos line up on the offensive side and line up on the defensive side and play against each other. It doesn't work that way, right? They will come together. They will work together to beat whatever team or lose to whatever team that they're playing. So Jesus says, this is ridiculous. You can't say that I'm from Satan and that I'm casting out demons, which he had just done. 
Verse 23, and he, Jesus, called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. My boys are happy to know right now that Jesus repeated himself and multiple different ways, and all to say the same thing. I've never done that. We can't miss it. Is divided, cannot stand. Is divided, cannot stand. Is divided, cannot stand. How is it, beloved, that we are going to reach the world with the message of the gospel, if we don't know it, if we haven't learned it, if we haven't tested on it, if we haven't taken it serious to learn it, to build our foundations, to build the house, to understand theology, all these things are so important to us as we reach into a world that is lost. We must be devoted. First Peter 5, 8, 9 is going to answer the question of how it is that we can maintain unity in the church. And essentially, the answer is by our faith. It is the gospel. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, and this is where I'd have you turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Philippians 2, 1 through 7. turn to this verse often in my own life and as I disciple others to follow Christ and I always encourage that they meditate on, think about, memorize these verses. If you can get these verses down, beloved, in your life, you'll be so much better off in dealing with all the difficulties that come at you. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and there is brewing there and already a problem between some of its members. We have studied that in the past, and you certainly can hit those sermons up on the website, but we know that in chapter 4, there will be two ladies who are encouraged to come back together. They are not in unity in the church, and this is the first clue that there are some problems with disunity in the church in chapter 2. And Paul says this, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, these clauses, we pick it up in the English, but it's certainly a little bit more definable in the Greek, are uh, uh, the type of clauses that you can add to this to each one of this. If there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there is any consolation of love, and there is, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is, if any affection and compassion, and there is, make my joy complete, listen here, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. I want you to pause and think about how complex that can be in our own lives. We can do very religious things for selfish or empty, conceited reasons. We can serve in Sunday school class just to 
prove that we have done it for 20 years and we're always going to do it, and it is done in selfishness or in vain or empty conceit. We're called here to do nothing, right? Religiously (laughs) or secularly. Do nothing. Think nothing of yourself. Think of that message in America. When you think of yourself, just quit. Don't do it. Unity. Fight for it. The devil is going to come. He is going to divide. He is going to act sometimes and oftentimes through people we trust and we love. I would love to say our elders are perfect and we're never going to make a mistake and we're never going to say something silly or dumb or self-centered, but I promise you right now, beloved, we, we are. We're going to do it. The flesh remains. We must be committed to what we find here in the text. Do nothing from selfishness and you can see. Do not, verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Here comes the command. How do we live a life in unity in the church? How do we attain to it? Peter is going to say that we must look out for the devil, right? In 1 Peter 1, verses, or 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, he's going to say, be on your guard, right? Open your eyes, pay attention all the time, right? The devil is roaring around like this, uh, uh, or roaming around like this roaring lion. What is his answer? That we be bound up or held up in our faith. And here it is here. Have this attitude in verse 5. In yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have it. Take it upon yourself. Quit thinking about yourself. Start thinking about others. Love other people before you love yourself. I'm constantly telling my boys and, and, and myself, just get in the habit of serving people. Be the last one in line every time. And it will help you to push back on the selfishness that comes into your life. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, think of this, past tense, Christ, he existed in the form of God. Although he existed in the form of God, what did he do? He did not regard or regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. A thing to be grasped, something to be held onto. The King James here, and maybe the New King James says, he did not consider it robbery. It could not be held onto. It could not be grabbed. It could not be grasped. He let it go. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. How do we keep unity, beloved, in the body? It's the gospel. Being reminded of the gospel. Being reminded of the reality that we are sinners in desperate, desperate need of the cross. And not only at the beginning of our relationship and walk with God, where God uh, uh, puts inside or plants inside us the Spirit of God, right? But day in and day out when we are reminded, convicted of our sin because the Spirit of God is living in us, that we return to the cross, we return to the cross, we return to the cross. You don't ever get to stop recognizing your sin, beloved. If you have done that, something is off in your life. 
And therefore, if you're focused and you recognize that sin exists in your own life and you are crying out as we will today and we will take this cup and we will break this bread again and be reminded that we need the grace of Jesus Christ, we must always be repenting, turning from our sin, recognizing our sin. And if you're doing that well, beloved, if you're doing that well, when somebody sins against you, and I will, or someone else will, your husband will, your boyfriend, your brother, your sister, you will be constantly reminded that, man, you're a sinner just like me. You need grace just like I do. How do we maintain unity? How do we, how do, we do this? How do we do this together? It is the answer is the gospel an understanding of our sinful nature, an understanding of our desperate need for Christ, an understanding of the Spirit of God to live in us, convict us of that sin. We think back now to our text in Acts chapter 2, verses 42, all the way to the end of that next paragraph, 47, there are 13 direct references to unity of the church. Paul in Ephesians 2 there is calling us to unity over and over and over, putting aside selfishness, putting aside everything, humbling yourself uh, like Christ, who is the perfect picture of giving up his rights to be who he was in the sense, right? He could have taken them back up. He did not. uh, He lays them aside in the sense he could have taken them back up. He told Peter in the garden, don't you know, Peter, I could call down legions of angels to come and war for me right now. But he laid them aside, and we must lay aside the right to what we might call justice in our life, in our relationships with our wives, and our relationships with our families, and say, you did me wrong. Forget that. Everybody done everybody wrong. We lean in on the grace of Jesus Christ and the mercy that he extends. How do we stay in unity the mention of it 13 times. It is a principal strength of the church and it is of utmost importance. If the church is to turn the world upside down, it cannot be divided amongst itself. At the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned that our prayer chapel back here on your left as you go out and around the corner, we do pray in there each morning for our services. It was dedicated to Martha Francis Emerson Wellness. Her life was remembered by her son, Paul Emerson, as a life of devotion. You would find, if you read the letter, that she had lost two husbands. She had supported her two children, Grace and Paul, through school while she scrubbed up $28 a month. Think of that. $28 a month. You find in this letter that there was an insurance policy, but back in those days, there wasn't insurance for the insurance, and the insurance man had made a bad decision and spent the $1,500 that she would have received from the death of her first husband and could not pay Martha back, and so she started a business and began to work, and she put her kids through school. 
I have up here the plaque, I have the letter, and I have this chair, and if you've been here for any length of time, you're maybe wondering, why in the world is this chair sitting up here? And if you've been here for any length of time, uh, you will know that we have done a lot of cleaning since we've been here. This facility has been here for a long time. But in our cleaning, we have kept the things that we felt like were important to the history of the church and, and uh, things that we want to put in a room for history. But this chair is of great interest. It would say here, if you were to read it, this Harvard chair was presented to Dr. Paul W. Emerson, Harvard Medical School, class of 1904, by his sister, Grace. By his sister, Grace. How did this lady pull it off? How does she make $28 a month and support her son to go to Harvard Medical School, of which he has the great honor of receiving this chair, and not from just anyone, his sister, who certainly would have gone through the troubles together. Well, she didn't do it on her own, Martha. The Lord walked with her, as he does with us, but he also did it through the body of Christ. Those who are committed to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayer. Paul Emerson mentioned in his letter that, uh, that he loved to remember his mother singing a hymn. Do you have any memories of that? I have one of my grandmother singing, Jesus loves me, each night that I stayed with her. But he loved to remember her, his, uh, his mother singing the hymn of Jonathan Edwards' grandson, Timothy Dwight called, I Love Thy Church, O God. It's short, it's just three verses, but hear it out. I love your church, O God, her saints before you stand, dear as the apple of your eye, the graven on your hand. Beyond my highest joy, I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. I love your church, O God, the people you have called, the church, our blessed Redeemer, saved with his own precious blood. Friends, I challenge you to love the church. I challenge you to fellowship, to unite yourself to the church. Mrs. Emerson, undoubtedly, she would be an amazing lady to know. It would be so fun to go back 100 years and... (laughs) get to talk to Paul Emerson and his sister and speak of the history and the, the love and the devotion to the church that Martha had. And I would hope that it would call us to the same kind of devotion that we might, as FBC members sing, I love thy church, O God. Love of the church that turns the world upside down will be a church that breaks bread together. I want to encourage you to get engaged beyond what we do on Sundays, uh, if it's 9 or 10, 15, if we're having Wednesday evenings, wonderful, get to know each other, love the church, be devoted to one another. Would you? Find one of the small groups, go midweek, spend time, eat a meal together, pray together. It is certainly our hope that you would grow together as a family you might bear one another's burdens from Galatians 6. We can do that, right?
Let's break bread together. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning and all that uh, you teach us in your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a body to grow together. That we would be a people that is known to be fellowshiped, to be linked, to be members of one another. Not just to be members, to be in a place, Lord, but to be working towards the gospel, reaching this community and ultimately the nations, Lord. Lord, we know that we cannot do that without your help, and we beg of you, God, by your Spirit, that you would give us the strength, the power to repent, to turn from sin, Lord, to walk with you. Give us the strength and the power to recognize that as we covenant together, Lord, that we are covenanting together with with uh, the poor and the, and the wealthy, but all for the purpose of being in unity that the world might look on and say, man, we know them by their love for one another. Help us in this endeavor, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.